170 years ago, Brigham Young looked across the Salt Lake Valley for the first time and declared, This is the right place. He knew the place because the Lord had revealed it to him. By 1869, more than 70,000 saints made a similar trek. Despite their many differences in language, culture, nationality, they shared a testimony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a desire to build Zion, a place of peace, happiness, and beauty in preparation for the second coming of the Savior. Among those first saints to arrive in Utah was Jane Manning James, the daughter of a freed slave, a convert to the restored Church, and a most remarkable disciple who faced difficult challenges. Sister James remained a faithful Latter-day Saint until her death in 1908 at the age of 87. She writes, I want to say here that my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the Savior of Jesus Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is as strong today, nay, it is, if possible, stronger than it was the day I was first baptized. I pay my tithes and offerings, keep the word of wisdom, I go to bed early and rise early. I try in my feeble way to set a good example to all. Sister James, like so many other Latter-day Saints, not only built Zion with blood, sweat, and tears, but also sought the Lord's blessings through the living gospel principles as best she could while holding on in faith to Jesus Christ, the great healer to all who sincerely seek Him. The early saints were not perfect, but they established a foundation upon which we are building families and a society that love and keep covenants, which is highlighted in various news stories around the world. Because of our commitment to Jesus Christ and our volunteer efforts to help those nearby and far away, President Irene, May I add appreciation to the tens of thousands of yellow-shirt angels serving in Texas to your wonderful tribute. I have a deep conviction that if we lose our ties to those who have gone before us, including our pioneer forefathers and mothers, we will lose a very precious treasure. I have spoken about faith in every footstep in the past and I will continue in the future, because I know that rising generations must have the same kind of faith that the early saints had in the Lord Jesus Christ and His restored gospel. My own pioneer forefathers and mothers were among those faithful pioneers who pulled handcarts, rode wagons, and walked to Utah. They, like Sister Jane Manning James, had deep faith in every one of their footsteps as they made their own trek. Their journals are filled with descriptions of hardship, hunger, sickness, 
and also testimonies of their faith in God and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. They had few worldly goods but enjoyed an abundance of the blessings of brotherhood and sisterhood they found in the Church of Jesus Christ. When they could, they lifted the downtrodden. They blessed the sick through service to one another and by the priesthood of God. The sisters in Cache Valley, Utah, ministered to the saints in the spirit of Relief Society to work in unity to help those in need. My great-grandmother, Margaret McNeil Ballard, served at the side of her husband, Henry, as he presided as bishop of the Logan Second Ward for 40—that's four-o—years. Margaret was the Ward Relief Society president for 30 of those years. She took into their home the poor, the sick, and the widowed, the orphan, and she even clothed the dead in their clean temple robes. Although it's appropriate and important to remember the historic 19th-century Mormon pioneer trek, we need to remember that the trek through life continues for each of us as we prove our own faith in every footstep. New converts no longer gather to pioneer settlements in the western United States. Instead, converts gather to their local congregations where the Saints worship our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ. With more than 30,000 congregations established around the world, all are gathered in their own Zion, as the scriptures note, for this is Zion, the pure in heart. As we walk the road of life, we are tested to see if we will observe do all th- to do all things the Lord has commanded. Many of us are on an amazing journeys of discovery leading to personal fulfillment and spiritual enlightenment. Some of us, however, are on a trek that leads to sorrow, sin, anguish, and despair. In this context, please ask yourselves, what is your final destination? Where are your footsteps taking you? And is your journey leading you to that multiplicity of blessings the Savior has promised? The trek back to our Heavenly Father is the most important trek of our lives, and it continues each day, each week, each month, and each year as we increase our faith in Him and His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We must be careful where our footsteps in life take us. We must be watchful and heed the counsel of Jesus to His disciples as He answered these questions. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man and I add, woman, deceive you. Today I report, repeat, earlier counsel from Church leaders. Brothers and sisters, keep the doctrine of Christ pure and never be deceived by those who tamper with the doctrine 
The gospel of the Father and the Son was restored through Joseph Smith, the prophet of this last dispensation. Do not listen to those who have not been ordained or set apart to their Church calling and are acknowledged by common consent of the members of the Church. Be aware of organizations or groups or individuals claiming secret answers to doctrinal questions that they say today's apostles and prophets do not have or understand. Do not listen to those who entice you with get-rich schemes. Our members have lost far too much money, so be careful. In some places, too many of our people are looking beyond the mark and seeking secret knowledge and expensive and questionable practices to provide healing and support. An official Church statement issued one year ago states, We urge Church members to be cautious about participating in any group that promises, in exchange for money, miraculous healings, or that claims to have special methods for assessing healing power outside properly ordained priesthood holders. The Church Handbook counsels members should not use medical or health practices that are ethically or legally questionable. Local leaders should advise members who have health problems to consult with competent professional practitioners who are licensed in the countries where they practice. Brothers and sisters, be wise and aware that such practices may be emotionally appealing but may ultimately prove to be spiritually and physically harmful. For our pioneer ancestors, independence and self-reliance were vital, but their sense of community was just as important. They worked together. They helped one another overcome physical and emotional challenges of their time. For the men, there was the priesthood quorum, and the women were served by the Relief Society. These outcomes have not changed in our day. The Relief Society and the Priesthood Quorum provide for the spiritual and temporal well-being of our members. Stay on the gospel path by having faith in every footstep so you can return safely back to the presence of Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is our precious Savior. He's the Redeemer of the world. We must honor His sacred name and not misuse it in any way, always striving to keep His commandments. If we do so, He will bless us and lead us safely home. I invite every one of you within the sound of my voice to welcome and embrace anyone who is making his or her own trek today, no matter where they are, in their journey. Please remember there is no blessing anyone can share greater than the message of the Restoration, which, when received and lived, promise everlasting joy and peace, even eternal life. Let us use our energy 
strength, and testimonies in assisting our missionaries to find, teach, and baptize God's children so they may have the power of the gospel and doctrine of Christ guiding their daily lives. We need to embrace God's children compassionately and eliminate any prejudice, including racism, sexism, or nationalism. Let it be said that we truly believe the blessings of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ are for every child of God. I testify that the trek continues, and I invite you to stay on the gospel path as you continue pressing forward by reaching out to all of God's children in love and compassion that we, that we may unitedly make our hearts pure and our hands clean to receive the multiplicity of blessings await all who truly love our Heavenly Father and His beloved Son, for which I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. First, a kind word for the little children. Yes, this is the last session, and yes, I am the final speaker. <laughs> Recently, while visiting the Provo City Center Temple, I admired a painting entitled First Vision from Afar. The painting depicts the light and power from heaven as the father and son visited the young Joseph Smith. While not making a comparison with the very sacred event that ushered in the Restoration, I can imagine a similar visual that would reflect the light and spiritual power of God descending upon this General Conference and, in turn, that power and light moving across the world. I give you my witness that Jesus is the Christ, that He guides the affairs of this sacred work and that General Conference is one of the very important times he gives direction to his Church and to us personally. On the day the Church was organized, the Lord designated Joseph Smith, a prophet, seer, and apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and said to the Church, For his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. For by doing these things the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good. Later, all members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles were also sustained and ordained as prophets, seers, and revelators. Now, as we meet under the direction of President Thomas S. Monson, we anticipate hearing the will of the Lord the mind of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. We trust in His promise, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants. It is the same. In the commotion and confusion of our modern world, trusting and believing in the words of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve is vital to our spiritual growth and endurance. We have come together for this wonderful conference. Millions of Latter-day Saints and others of faith in more than 200 countries 
speaking more than 93 languages, attend these sessions or read the conference messages. We come having prayed and prepared. For many of us, there are pressing worries and earnest questions. We want to renew our faith in our Savior Jesus Christ and to strengthen our ability to resist temptation and avoid distractions. We come to be taught from on high. For the First Presidency and the Twelve, who normally speak each conference, the enormous responsibility of preparing their messages is both a reoccurring burden and a sacred trust. Years ago, before serving as a general authority, I asked Elder Dallin H. Oaks if he prepared a separate talk for each state conference. He responded that he did not, but added, But my general conference talks are different. I may go through 12 to 15 drafts to be sure that I say what the Lord would have me say. When and how does the inspiration for general conference talks come? With no topics assigned, we see heaven beautifully coordinating the subjects and themes of eternal truth each and every conference. One of my brethren told me that his subject for this conference was given to him immediately after his talk last April. Another mentioned three weeks ago that he was still praying and waiting upon the Lord. Another, when asked how long it had taken to compose an especially sensitive talk, responded, 25 years. At times, the central idea may come quickly, but the content and details still require enormous spiritual climbing. Fasting and prayer, study and faith are always part of the process. The Lord wants no pretense diminishing His voice to His saints. Direction for a general conference talk often comes in the night or the early morning hours when the talk is far from the thoughts of the mind. Suddenly, unanticipated insight and at times specific words and phrases flow as pure revelation. As you listen, the messages you receive may be very literal or they may be customized just for you. Speaking many years ago in General Conference, I told of a phrase that entered my mind as I prepared, as I wondered if I was prepared to serve a mission. The phrase was, you don't know everything, but you know enough. A young woman sitting in General Conference that day told me that she was praying over a proposal for marriage, wondering how well she knew the young men. When I spoke the words, you don't know everything, but you know enough, the Spirit confirmed to her that she did know him well enough. They have been happily married for many years. I promise you that as you prepare your spirit and come with the anticipation that you will hear the voice of the Lord, thoughts and feelings will come into your mind that are customized especially for you. You have already felt them in this conference, or you will as you study the messages in the weeks ahead. President Monson has said, Take time to read the conference messages. Ponder them. 
I have found that I gain even more from these inspired sermons when I study them in greater depth. The teachings of General Conference are the considerations the Lord would have before us now and in the months ahead. The shepherd goeth before his sheep, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Often his voice directs us to change something in our lives. He invites us to repent. He invites us to follow him. Think about these statements from this conference. President Eyring, from this morning, I bear my witness that God the Father lives and wants you to come home to him. This is the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows you. He loves you, and he watches over you. President Uchtdorf, from yesterday, I testify that when we embark upon and or continue the incredible journey that leads to God, our lives will be better, and the Lord will use us in remarkable ways to bless those around us and bring about his eternal purposes. President Nelson from yesterday afternoon, I promise that as you daily immerse yourself in the Book of Mormon, you can be immunized against the evils of the day, including even the gripping plague of pornography and the other mind-numbing addictions. Elder Oaks yesterday, I testify that the proclamation of the family is a statement of eternal truth the will of the Lord for his children who seek eternal life. And Elder Ballard from just a few minutes ago, we need to embrace God's children compassionately and eliminate any prejudice, including racism, sexism, and nationalism. Because we have an extra minute, I would like to just add a brief reflection about Elder Robert D. Hales. The First Presidency had told Elder Hales that he could give a brief message in the Sunday morning session if his health permitted it. While his health did not permit it, he prepared a message which he finished last week and shared with me. Given his passing approximately three hours ago, I share just three lines from this talk, quoting Elder Hales. When we choose to have faith, we are prepared to stand in the presence of God. After the Savior's crucifixion, he appeared only to those who had been faithful in the testimony of him while they lived in mortality. Those who rejected the testimonies of the prophets could not behold the Savior's presence nor look upon his face. Our faith prepares us to be in the presence of God. How kind of the Lord to impress upon President Russell M. Nelson to quickly leave the first session of conference at the end, skip his lunch, and quickly move to the bedside of Elder Hales, 
where he could arrive and be there, his quorum president, with the angelic Mary Hales as Elder Hales graduated from mortality. I testify that in this conference we have heard the voice of the Lord. We should not be alarmed when the words of the Lord's servants run counter to the thinking of the world and, at times, our own thinking. It has always been this way. I am on my knees in the temple with my brethren, and I attest to the goodness of their souls. Their greatest desire is to please the Lord and help God's children return to His presence. The Seventy, the Bishopric, the Relief Society, Young Women, Primary, and other auxiliary leaders have added tremendous inspiration to this conference, as has the beautiful music and the thoughtful prayers. There is a treasure chest of heavenly direction awaiting your discovery in the messages of General Conference. The test for each of us is how we respond to what we hear, what we read, and what we feel. Let me share an experience about responding to prophetic words from the life of President Russell M. Nelson. In 1979, five years before his call as a general authority, Brother Nelson attended a meeting just prior to General Conference. President Spencer W. Kimball challenged all present to lengthen their stride in taking the gospel to the entire world. Among the countries President Kimball specifically mentioned was China, declaring we should be of service to the Chinese, we should learn their language, we should pray for them and help them. At age 54, Brother Nelson had a feeling during the meeting that he should study the Mandarin language. Although a busy heart surgeon, he immediately secured the services of a tutor. Not long after beginning his studies, Dr. Nelson attended a convention and unexpectedly found himself sitting next to a distinguished Chinese surgeon, Dr. Wu Ying Kai. Because Brother Nelson had been studying Mandarin, he began a conversation with Dr. Wu. Dr. Nelson's desire to follow the prophet led to Dr. Wu visiting Salt Lake City and Dr. Nelson traveling to China to give lectures and perform surgical operations. His love for the Chinese people and their love and respect for him grew. In February of 1985, ten months after his call to the Quorum of the Twelve, Elder Nelson received a surprise phone call from China pleading for Dr. Nelson to come to Beijing to operate on the failing heart of China's most famous opera singer. With the encouragement of President Hinckley, Elder Nelson returned to China, the last surgical operation he ever performed was in the People's Republic of China. Just two years ago, President Russell M. Nelson was once again honored with an official declaration naming him an old friend of China. Then yesterday, we heard the now 93-year-old President Russell M. Nelson 
speak of President Thomas S. Monson's plea to each of us in last April's conference to prayerfully study and ponder the Book of Mormon each day. Just like he did as a busy heart surgeon when he hired a Mandarin tutor, President Nelson immediately took the counsel of President Monson and applied it to his own life. More than just reading, he said that he made lists of what the Book of Mormon is, what it affirms, what it refutes, what it fulfills, what it clarifies, and what it reveals. And then, interestingly, just this morning, as a second witness, President Henry B. Eyring also spoke of his response to President Monson's admonition. Do you remember these words? Like many of you, I heard the prophet's words as the voice of the Lord to me. And also, like many of you, I decided to obey those words. May we see these as examples for our own lives. I promise that as you hear the voice of the Lord to you in the teachings of this general conference and then act on those promptings, you will feel heaven's hand upon you and your life and the lives of those around you will be blessed. During this conference, we have thought of our dear prophet. We love you, President Monson. I close with his words given from this pulpit, and I believe it is a blessing that he would want to give to each of us today were he here with us. He said, As I leave this conference, I invoke a blessing upon you. May the messages and the spirit of this conference find expression in all you do, in your homes, in your work, in your meetings, and in all your comings and goings. He concluded, I love you. I pray for you. May God bless you. May his promised peace be with you now and always. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. During the Last Supper, the Savior gave a new commandment to his disciples, saying, quote, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. Close quote. The Savior's disciples were given a new commandment to do something more, something greater, and something more divine. This new commandment and invitation is summarized in the key phrase, as I have loved you. Love is a feeling of deep devotion, concern, and affection. The greatest example of God's love for his children is found in the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, John recorded, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Love for God and fellow men is a characteristic of disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Some years ago, when our oldest grandson, Jose, was four, he was playing with my wife. While they were laughing and having a good time together, our grandson asked her, Grandma, do you love me? She answered him, Yes, Jose, I do love you. Then he asked her another question. How do you know that you love me? She explained to him her feelings and also told him all she had done and was willing to do for him. Later, my wife asked Jose the same questions, including this penetrating inquiry. How do you know that you love me? With an innocent but sincere response, he said, I love you because I feel it inside my heart. Jose's loving behavior to his grandmother that day and always demonstrate that love is a combination of actions as well as deep feelings. King Benjamin taught, quote, Behold, I tell these things that ye may learn wisdom, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Close quote. In today's world of so much suffering for different circumstances, sending a text message with a funny emoji or posting a nice picture with the words, I love you, is good and valuable. But what many of us need to do is leave our mobile devices behind and with our hands and feet help others in great need. Love without service is like faith without works. It's dead indeed. The pure love of Christ, which is charity, not only inspires us to act and provide service, but also to have the strength to forgive regardless of the situation. May I share with you an experience that has impacted and changed my life. Ted and Sharon, Cooper's parents, who are here today, have given me permission to share what happened to their family more than nine years ago. I will tell the experience from the perspective of Ted Cooper's father. August 21, 2008 was the first day of school, and Cooper's three older brothers, Evan, Garrett, and Logan, were all at the bus stop waiting to board buses. Cooper, who was four years old, was on his bike. My wife, Sharon, had walked. My wife was across the street and motioned to Cooper to cross. At the same time, a car very slowly made a left turn and rolled over Cooper. I received a phone call from a neighbor telling me Cooper had been hit by a car. I quickly dropped down to the bus stop to see him. Cooper was lying on the grass, struggling to breathe, but had no visible injuries. I knelt down by Cooper and said encouraging things like, it's going to be okay, hang on. At that moment, my high priest, group leader Nathan, appeared with his wife. She suggested we give Cooper a priesthood blessing. We laid our hands on Cooper's head. I can't remember what I said in the blessing, but I clearly remember the presence of others around us, and it was. At that moment, I knew Cooper was going to pass away. 
Cooper was flown by helicopter to the hospital, but did, in fact, pass away. I felt Heavenly Father was telling me that my early stewardship had ended and that Cooper was now in his care. We were able to spend some time with Cooper at the hospital. The workers there prepared him so we could call him and say our goodbyes and allow us to spend as much time with him, holding him as we desire. On the way home, my grief-stricken wife and I looked at each other and started talking about the boy who was driving the car. We didn't know him, even though he lived just one street over and was within our war boundaries. The next day was very difficult for us, and we were all completely overwhelmed with grief. I fell to my knees and prayed the most sincere prayer I had ever offered. I asked Heavenly Father in the name of my Savior to take away my overwhelming grief. He did so. Later that day, one of the counselors in the, our state presidency arranged for us to meet with the young man, the driver of the car, and his parents at the counselor's home. Sharon and I wait, waited for the boy and his parents to arrive. When the door opened, we met them for the first time. My bishop whispered in my ear, go to him. Sharon and I embraced him in a big group hug. We wept together for what seemed to be a long time. We told him we knew that what had happened was the definition of an accident. It was miracles, miraculous to Sharon and me both that we felt the way we did and that we still do. By God's grace, we were able to take the big path, the obvious path, the only path, and love this good young man. We have become very close to him and his family over the years. He has shared his most precious milestone moments with us. We even went to, to the temple with him as he prepared for his mission. Brothers and sisters, Ted knows without any doubt that our Heavenly Father loves us. He knows that being able to forgive and to unburden himself in that way is as sweet as being forgiven. The sweetness comes from following the example of our great exemplar. In the Book of Mormon, Alma declared of the Savior, and he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled which said, he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. Brothers and sisters, what a marvelous story of real, real love and forgiveness. We, likewise, can have joy and happiness as we serve and forgive others. Georgie, another of our grandsons, often says, What kind of family we are? And he responds, We are a happy family. President Thomas S. Monso has counseled us, saying, quote, let us examine our lives and determine to follow the Savior's example by being kind, loving, and charitable. I know that our Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus Christ loves us and are willing to help us to act, to act as we love one another as they have loved us. 
And I know that by serving and forgiving others with real love, we can be healed and receive the strength to overcome our own challenges. And I so declare, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Early one morning, I saw a hungry and well-camouflaged caterpillar on a beautiful rose bush. From the look of some of the leafless shoots, it was obvious to even the casual observer that it had been gnawing its way through the tender leaves with its menacing jaws. Allegorically, I could not help but think that there are some people who are like this caterpillar. They are found throughout the world, and some are so cleverly disguised that we may allow them into our lives, and before we know it, they have eaten away at our spiritual roots and those of our family members and friends. We live in a day in which misinformation about our beliefs abounds. In times such as these, a failure to protect and deepen our spiritual roots is an invitation to have them gnawed at by those who seek to destroy our faith in Christ and our belief in his restored church. In Book of Mormon times, it was Zizram who sought to destroy the faith of the believers. His actions and words were a snare of the adversary, which he laid to catch the people, that he might bring them into subjection unto him, that he might encircle them about with his chains. Those same snares exist today, and unless we are spiritually vigilant and build a sure foundation on our Redeemer, we may find ourselves bound with Satan's chains and being led carefully down the forbidden paths spoken of in the Book of Mormon. The Apostle Paul sounded a warning in his day that is applicable to our day. For I know this of our own selves, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. His warning and those of our prophets and apostles remind us that we must do all we can to fortify ourselves spiritually against words, opposition, and deception. As I visit wards and stakes of the church, I am uplifted by what I see, hear, and feel as saints positively and faithfully respond to the teachings of the Savior and his servants. The increase in Sabbath day observance is but one example of members spiritually fortifying themselves by heeding prophetic invitations. Further strengthening is evidenced in the increase in temple and family history work as families gather their ancestors through temple ordinances. Our spiritual roots go deeper as sincere personal and family prayer become bastions of our faith as we repent daily, seek the companionship of the Holy Ghost, and learn of our Savior and his attributes and strive to become like him. Our Savior Jesus Christ is the light of the world and he beckons us to follow him. We must look to him at all times and especially so if there are dark and stormy nights when the tempest of doubt and uncertainty like a rolling fog creeps in. Should the pointed fingers from the other side of the river of water where a great and spacious building stands, appear to be directed at you in the attitude of mocking, demeaning, and beckoning, I ask that you immediately turn away so that you are not persuaded by cunning and devious means 
to separate yourself from truth and its blessings. However, this alone will not be enough in this day when perverse things are being spoken, written, and portrayed. Elder Robert D. Hales taught us, quote, unless you are fully engaged in living the gospel, living it with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, you cannot generate enough spiritual light to push back the darkness, end quote. Surely, our desire to follow Christ, who is the light of the world, means we must act on his teachings. We are spiritually strengthened, fortified, and protected as we act on the word of God. The greater the light in our lives, the fewer the shadows. However, even in an abundance of light, we are exposed to people and comments that misrepresent our beliefs and try our faith. The Apostle James wrote that the trying of our faith worketh patience. With this insight, Elder Neil A. Maxwell taught, quote, a patient disciple will not be surprised or undone when the church is misrepresented. Questions about our church history and beliefs do arise. Where we turn to find answers requires great care. There is nothing to be gained in exploring the views and the opinions of the less informed or disenchanted. The best counsel was given by Apostle James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Asking of God is to be preceded by careful study, for we are under scriptural mandate to seek out the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning even by study and also by faith. There is a rich abundance of these books written by heaven-inspired church leaders and recognized safe and reliable church history and doctrine scholars. With that said, none surpassed the majesty of the revealed word of God in canonized scripture. From those thin pages, thick with spiritual insights, we learn truth through the Holy Ghost and thereby increase in light. President Thomas S. Monson has implored us, quote, to prayerfully study and ponder the Book of Mormon each day, end quote. Several years ago, while serving as president of the Fiji Suva Mission, some missionaries had an experience which reinforced in them the converting power of the Book of Mormon. On a hot and humid day, two elders arrived at a home in a small settlement in Lombasa. The knock on the door was answered by a withered man who listened as the missionaries testified of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. They gave him a copy and invited him to read and to pray to know, like them, that it is the word of God. His reply was brief. Tomorrow I return to fishing. I will read it while at sea, and when I return, you may visit me again. While he was away, transfers were made, and a few weeks later, a new companionship of elders returned to visit the fishermen. By this time, he had read the entire Book of Mormon, had received confirmation of his truthfulness, and was eager to learn more. This man had been converted by the Holy Ghost, who witnessed of the truth of the precious words on every page of events and doctrine taught long ago and preserved for our day in the Book of Mormon. 
That same blessing is available to each of us. The home is an ideal place for families to study and share valuable insights from the scriptures, the words of the prophets, and to access material at lds.org. There you will find an abundance of information about gospel topics such as the first vision accounts. As we study from the best books, we protect ourselves against the menacing jaws of those that seek to gnaw at our spiritual roots. With all our prayer, studying, and pondering, there may still remain some yet-to-be-answered questions, but we must not let that extinguish the flame of faith that flickers within us. Such questions are an invitation to build our faith and should not fuel a passing moment of deceiving doubt. It is the very essence of religion not to have a sure answer for this to every question, for this is one of the purposes of faith. In that regard, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has taught us that, quote, when those moments come and issues surface, the resolution of which is not immediately forthcoming, hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. We see around us the joy of so many who are standing strong by continually nourishing their spiritual roots. Their faith and obedience is sufficient to give them great hope in their Savior, and from that stems great happiness. They don't profess to know all things, but they have paid the price to know enough to have peace and to live with patience as they seek to know more. Line upon line, their faith is cemented in Christ, and they stand strong as fellow citizens with the saints. Let each of us live so that the menacing jaws of camouflaged caterpillars find no place, not now or ever, in our lives so that we will remain firm in the faith of Christ even unto the end. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When I was about seven years old, I asked my mother, when you and I die and go to heaven, will you still be my mother? She was not expecting such a question, but answering to the best of her knowledge, she said, no. In heaven, we are going to be brothers and sisters. I will not be your mother. That was not the answer I was hoping for. Sometime after that, short interaction, two young men arrived at the gate of our home. By some miracle, my father allowed them to come in. They said they were missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These elders, as we learned to call them, started to teach our family. I vividly remember our feelings of happiness and excitement every time they came to our home. They told us a young man had gone to a grove to ask God which church was true and that he saw God in Jesus Christ. The elders showed us an illustration of that vision, and when I saw it, I knew that Joseph Smith had indeed seen God the Father and Jesus Christ. The missionary said that because of this vision, 
the true Church of Jesus Christ was again upon the earth. The missionaries also taught us God's plan of happiness and answered our family's questions about religion. They taught us that families truly can be together after this life as father, mother, and sons and daughters. Our family was baptized. The road to changing old habits, giving up traditions, and becoming active members of the Church was at times bumpy. But because of the mercy and love of God, and with the help of many leaders and members, we made it through the first challenging years. Millions who have already joined the Church, as well as the many who are being converted and baptized each week, have gained a testimony of the first vision. The Holy Ghost can repeat this witness often to each one of us as we strive to live the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first vision of the prophet Joseph Smith brought forth additional knowledge and truth that are essential to our happiness in this life and our exaltation in the presence of God. I will mention three of the truths we gained and must act on because a young boy knelt in sincere prayer. An essential truth we learn from the first vision and the prophet Joseph Smith is that God calls prophets, seers, and revelators to instruct, guide, warn, and lead us. These men are God's mouthpieces on earth with the authority to speak and act in the name of the Lord. By strictly following their counsel, we will be protected and receive choice blessings in our journey on this earth. While studying at Brigham Young University as a young single return missionary, I attended a priesthood session of general conference in the tabernacle on Temple Square. President Ezra Taft Benson, then president of the church, urged every return missionary to take marriage seriously and make it a top priority in his life. After the session, I knew I had been called to repentance and, and needed to act on the prophet's counsel. Thus, I decided to go to my home country, Brazil, to find a wife. Before leaving for Brazil on a two-month internship, I called my mom and some friends on the phone and came up with a list of about ten young women. <laughs> Each of them a potential wife. <laughs> While in Brazil, after much pondering and prayer, I met, dated, got engaged to, and set a date to marry one of the young women on the list. It was not record-breaking time for students in Provo, Utah to date and become engaged. But it was fast by Brazil's standards. A few months later, I married Elaine. She is the love of my life and a choice blessing. I'm not suggesting 
that everyone should make a similar list, but I am suggesting, <laughs> maybe more than suggesting, that we always act when our living prophets speak. God's prophet today is President Thomas S. Munson, and we will be blessed by following his counsel with exactness. Another truth we learned because of the first vision and the prophet Joseph Smith is the true nature of God. Just imagine how blessed we are to know that God is a being with a body of flesh and bones as tangible as ours, that we can worship a God who is real, whom we can understand, and who has shown and revealed himself and his Son to his prophets, both prophets of old and in these latter days. He is a God who hears and answers our prayers, a God who watches us from heaven above and is constantly concerned about our spiritual and temporal well-being, a God who gives us agency to decide for ourselves to follow him and obey his commandments without coercion, a God who gives us blessings and allows us to face trials so we can grow and become like him. He is a loving God who provided a plan through which we can enjoy happiness in this life and in eternity. From the first vision and the prophet Joseph Smith, we receive knowledge of the reality and sacred mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of our religion, because death was introduced into the world as surely as we live now we will all die one day. One of the effects of death would be the permanent loss of our physical body. We wouldn't be able to do anything to reclaim it. In addition, because we all sin during our journey here on earth, we would never be able to return to our Heavenly Father's presence. Can you imagine the consequences of being deprived of God's presence and never again having a body? A Savior and Redeemer was needed to free us from death and sin. Under Heavenly Father's direction, Jesus Christ came to earth, suffered, died on the cross, and was resurrected so that we too can be resurrected and with sincere repentance and the making and keeping of sacred covenants be once again in the presence of God. Jacob explained, Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yes, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the lawgiver, the Holy One of Israel, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, our all. May we all continue to act upon these essential truths and knowledge, offering our obedience to God and His beloved Son. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
Before I begin, as one representing all of us impacted by the devastation of the recent hurricanes and earthquakes, I express my heartfelt appreciation to all the helping hands and their facilitators who gave us help and hope. In October 2006, I gave my first general conference talk. I felt an important message for the worldwide Church included the assertion, The Lord trusts us. He really does trust us in so many ways. He has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ and in this dispensation its fullness. He entrusts us with his priesthood authority complete with its keys for proper use. With that power we can bless, serve, receive ordinances, and make covenants. He trusts us with his restored Church, including the Holy Temple. He trusts his servants with the sealing power to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven. He even trusts us to be the earthly parents, teachers, and caregivers of his children. After these years of general authority service, I declare with even more certainty, he trusts us. Now, the question for this conference is, do we trust him? President Tobin S. Monson often reminds us to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Do we trust his commandments to be for our good, his leaders, though imperfect, to lead us well, his promises to be sure? Do we trust Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ do know us and want to help us? Even in the midst of trials, challenges, and hard times, do we still trust him? Looking back, I learned some of the best lessons during the hardest times whether as a youth, on a mission, starting a new career, striving to magnify my callings, or raising a large family. It seems clear that hard is good. Hard makes us stronger, humbles us, gives us a chance to prove ourselves. Our beloved handcart pioneers came to know God in their extremities. Why did it take two chapters for Nephi and his brothers to obtain the brass plates and only three verses to enlist Ishmael's family to join them in the wilderness. It seems the Lord wanted to strengthen Nephi through the struggle of obtaining the plates. The hard things in our lives should come as no surprise. One of the earliest covenants we make with the Lord is to live the law of sacrifice. Sacrifice, by definition, involves giving up something desirable. With experience, we realize it is a small price to pay in relation to the blessings that follow. Joseph Smith said, A religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. Members of the Godhead are no strangers to hard things. God the Father sacrificed His only begotten Son to the terrible suffering of the Atonement, including death by crucifixion. The scriptures say Jesus Christ learned obedience by the things He suffered. He voluntarily suffered the agony of the Atonement. The Holy Ghost must be long-suffering to prompt, warn, and guide us, only to sometimes be ignored, misinterpreted, or forgotten. Hard is part of the gospel plan. One of the purposes of this life is to be proven. Few have suffered more undeservedly than the people of Alma. They fled from wicked King Noah only to become slaves to the Lamanites. Through those trials, the Lord taught them that He chastens His people. He tries their patience and their faith. 
During the terrible days in Liberty Jail, the Lord taught Joseph Smith to endure it well and promised that if he did, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. President Monson has pleaded, May we ever choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. With regard to our temples, he stated that no sacrifice is too great, no price too heavy, no struggle too difficult in order to receive temple blessings. In the world of nature, hard is part of the circle of life. It's hard for a baby chick to hatch out of that tough eggshell. But when someone tries to make it easier, the chick does not develop the strength necessary to live. In a similar way, the struggle of a butterfly to escape the cocoon strengthens it for the life it will live. Through these examples, we see that hard is the constant. We all have challenges. The variable is our reaction to the hard. At one point, some Book of Mormon people suffered great persecutions and much affliction. How did they react? They did fast and pray oft, did wax stronger and stronger in their humility, and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ, unto the fulfilling their souls with joy at consolation. Another example occurred after years of war. Because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened, and some, had be- some were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God. We each choose our reaction to hard. Before this calling, I was a financial consultant in Houston, Texas. Most of my work was with multimillionaires who owned their own businesses. Almost all of them had created their successful business through lots, from nothing through lots of hard work. The saddest thing for me was to hear some of them say that they wanted to make it easier for their children. They did not want their children to suffer as they had. In other words, they would deprive their children of the very thing that had made them successful. By contrast, we know a family who took a different approach. The parents were inspired by J. C. Penney's experience, where his father told him when he turned eight years old that he was on his own financially. But they came up with their own version. <laughs> As each child graduated from high school, they were on their own financially for further education, college, graduate school, and for financial maintenance, truly self-reliant. Happily, the children reacted wisely. All of them are college graduates, and several also completed graduate school, all on their own. It wasn't easy, but they did it. They did it going forward with faith. The question, do we trust Him, may be better stated, do we have the faith to trust Him? Do we have the faith to trust His promises regarding tithing, that with 90 percent of our increase plus the Lord's help, we're better off than with 100 percent on our own? Do we have the sufficient faith to trust that He will visit us in our afflictions, that He will contend with those that contend with us, that He will consecrate our afflictions for our gain? Will we exercise the faith necessary to keep His commandments so that He can bless us both temporally and spiritually? And will we continue faithful to the end so that He can receive us into His presence? Brothers and sisters, we can have the faith to trust Him. He wants what is best for us. He will answer our prayers. He will keep His promises. He has the power to keep those promises. He knows everything. And most importantly, He knows what is best. Our world today is difficult. We have rampant evil, corruption in every nation, 
terrorism reaching even safe places, unemployment, disease, natural disasters, civil wars, despotic leaders, and so on. What should we do? Do we flee or fight? Which is right. Either choice can be dangerous. It was dangerous for George Washington and his armies to fight, but also for our pioneer ancestors to flee. It was dangerous for Nelson Mandela to struggle for freedom. It has been said that for evil to prevail, it is only necessary for good people to do nothing. And whatever we do, we should not decide nor act out of a spirit of fear. Truly, God hath not given us a spirit of fear. Do you realize that the idea of fear not is emphasized throughout the scriptures? The Lord has taught me that discouragement and fear are tools of the adversary. The Lord's answer to hard times is to go forward with faith. Each of us have a different, may have a different opinion about what is hard. Some may consider it hard to pay tithing when the finances are tight. Some leaders find it difficult to expect the poor to pay tithing. It may be hard for some of us to go forward with faith to marry or have a family. There are those who find it hard to be content with what the Lord hath allotted unto them. It may be hard to be content with our current calling. Church discipline may seem very hard, but for some it marks the beginning of the true repentance process. Regardless of the issue, hard can be good for those who will move forward with faith and trust the Lord and His plan. My brothers and sisters, I witness that these leaders behind me are called of God. Their desire is to serve the Lord well and help us establish the gospel in our hearts. I love and sustain them. I love and sustain our Savior Jesus Christ. I marvel that He loved the Father and us enough to become our Savior and Redeemer, that by so doing He had to suffer such that it caused Him to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. Yet faced with this awful prospect and its necessity, he affirmed to the Father, Not my will, but thine be done. I glory in the angel's words, He is not here, for his risen. His example truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Only by following that example can we find peace in this world and eternal life in the world to come. My greatest desires are to stand with Mormon as a true disciple of Jesus Christ and to one day hear from his lips, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In June 1994, I was anxiously driving back home from work to watch on TV our national soccer team play in the World Cup. Soon after I started my journey, I saw from afar on the sidewalk a handicapped man quickly rolling forward his wheelchair, which I noticed was decorated with our Brazilian flag. I knew then he was also going home to watch the game. When our paths crossed and our eyes met for a fraction of a second, I felt strongly united with that man. We were going in different directions didn't know each other, had clearly social and physical, different social and physical conditions. But our same passion for soccer and love for our country made us feel like one in that very moment. I haven't seen that man since then. But today, decades apart, I can still see those eyes 
and feel that strong connection with that man. After all, we won the game and the World Cup that year. <laughs> in the church, in spite of our differences, the Lord expects us to be one. He said in the Doctrine and Covenants, be one, and if you are not one, you are not mine. As we all enter a meeting house to worship as a group, we should leave behind our differences, including race, social status, political preferences, academic and professional achievements, and instead concentrate on our common spiritual objectives. Together we sing hymns, ponder about the same covenants during sacrament, say simultaneously an audible amen after talks, lessons, and prayers, meaning that we jointly agree with what was shared. These things that we do collectively help create a strong sense of oneness within the congregation. However, what really determines, solidifies, or destroys our unity is how we act when we are apart from our church members. As we all know, it is inevitable and normal that eventually we will talk about each other. Depending on what we choose to say about one another, our words will either have our hearts knit together in unity, as Alma taught at the Waters of Mormon, or they will erode love, trust, and the goodwill that should exist among us. There are comments that subtly destroy unity, such as, yes, he's a good bishop, oh, but you should have seen him when he was a young man. A more constructive version of this might be, the bishop is so good, and he has grown so much in maturity and wisdom over the years. Oftentimes we put permanent labels on people, saying something like, our Relief Society president is a lost cause. She's, she's so stubborn. In contrast, we might say, the Relief Society president has been uh, less flexible lately. <laughs> Maybe she's going through some difficult times. Let's help her and sustain her. Brothers and sisters, we have no right to portray anybody, especially from our church circle, as a badly finished product. Rather, our words about our fellow beings should reflect our belief in Jesus Christ and His Atonement, and that in Him and through Him we can always change for the better. Some start criticizing and becoming divided with church leaders and members for things that are so small. Such was the case of a man called Simon's Rider, who became a member of the church in 1831. After reading a revelation that pertained to him, he was perplexed to see that his name was misspelled Rider with the letter I instead of with the letter Y. His reaction to this event contributed to his questioning the prophet and eventually led to the persecution of Joseph and falling away from the church. 
It is also likely that we will all experience some correction from our ecclesiastic leaders, which will be a test on how united we are with them. I was only 11, but I remember 40, 40 years ago, the meeting house where my family attended church was to experience major remodeling. Before starting that undertaking, there was a meeting in which local leaders and area leaders were discussing how the members would participate with labor in that effort. My father, who had previously presided over that unit for years, expressed his very strong opinion that this work should be done by a contractor, not by amateurs. Not only was his opinion rejected, but we heard that he was severely and publicly rebuked on that occasion. Now, this was a man who was very dedicated to the church and also a World War II veteran in Europe, used to resisting and fighting for what he believed in. One wondered what his reaction might be after this incident. Would he persist with his opinion and continue to oppose the decision already made? We had seen families in our ward who had become weaker in the gospel and had stopped attending meetings because they could not be one with those who were leading. I myself also witnessed many of my friends from primary not remaining faithful in their youth because their parents were always finding fault with those inside the church. My dad, however, decided to remain one with our fellow saints. Some days later, when ward members were gathering to help in the construction, he invited our family to follow him to the meeting house where we would make ourselves available to help in any way. I was furious. I felt like asking him, Dad, why in the world are we going to help the construction and the construction if you were against having the members do it? But the look on his face discouraged me to do that. I wanted to be well for the rededication. <laughs> so fortunately, I decided to be quiet and just go and help in the building. Father did not get to see the new chapel as he passed away before the conclusion of this work. But we in the family, led now by my mom, continued doing our part until it was finished. And that kept us united with my father, with the church members and leaders, and most importantly, with the Lord. Just moments before his excruciating experiences in Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying to the Father for his apostles and all of us, the saints, he said, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me. And I indeed. Brothers and sisters, I testify that as we decide to be one with the members and leaders of the church, both when we're assembled together, but especially when we're apart, we will also feel more perfectly united with our Heavenly Father and the Savior. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. The Book of Mormon is not only the keystone of our religion, but it can also become the keystone of our testimonies. 
so that when trials or unanswered questions confront us, it can hold our testimony securely in place. This book is the one weight on the scales of truth that exceeds the combined weight of all the critics' arguments. Why? Because if it is true, then Joseph Smith was a prophet, and this is the restored Church of Jesus Christ, regardless of any historical or other arguments to the contrary. For this reason, the critics are intent on disproving the Book of Mormon, but the obstacles they face are insurmountable because this book is true. First, the critics must explain how Joseph Smith, a 23-year-old farm boy with limited education, created a book with hundreds of unique names and places, as well as detailed stories and events. Accordingly, many critics propose that he was a creative genius who relied upon numerous books and other local resources to create the historical content of the Book of Mormon. But contrary to their assertion, there is not a solitary witness who claims to have seen Joseph with any of these alleged resources before the translation began. Even if this argument were true, it is woefully insufficient to explain the Book of Mormon's existence. One must also answer the question, how did Joseph read all of these alleged resources? Winnow out the irrelevant, keep the intricate facts straight as to who was in what place and when, and then dictate it by perfect memory. For when Joseph Smith translated, he had no notes whatsoever. In fact, his wife Emma recalled, he had neither manuscript nor book to read from. If he had had anything of the kind, he could not have concealed it from me. So how did Joseph perform this remarkable feat of dictating a 500-plus page book without any notes? To do so, he must not only have been a creative genius, but also have had a photographic memory of prodigious proportions. But if that is true, why did his critics not call attention to this remarkable talent? But there is more. These arguments account only for the book's historical content. The real issues still remain. How did Joseph produce a book that radiates with the Spirit? And where did he get such profound doctrine, much of which clarifies or contradicts the Christian beliefs of his time? For example, the Book of Mormon teaches, contrary to most Christian beliefs, that the fall of Adam was a positive step forward. It reveals the covenants made at baptism, which are not addressed in the Bible. In addition, one might ask, where did Joseph get the powerful insight that because of Christ's Atonement, he can not only cleanse us, but also perfect us? Where did he get the stunning sermon on faith in Alma 32, or King Benjamin's sermon on the Savior's Atonement, perhaps the most remarkable sermon on this subject in all Scripture, or the allegory of the olive tree with all its complexity and doctrinal richness? When I read this allegory, I have to map it out to follow its intricacies. Are we now supposed to believe that Joseph Smith just dictated these sermons off the top of his head with no notes whatsoever? Contrary to such a conclusion, God's fingerprints are all over the Book of Mormon, as evidenced by its majestic doctrinal truths, particularly its masterful sermons on the Atonement of Jesus Christ. If Joseph were not a prophet, then in order to account for these and many other remarkable doctrinal insights, the critics must make the argument that he was also a theological genius. But if that were the case, one might ask, why was Joseph the only one in the 1800 years following Christ's ministry to produce such a breadth of unique and clarifying doctrines? 
because it was revelation, not brilliance, that was the source of this book. But even if we suppose Joseph were a creative and theological genius with a photographic memory, these talents alone do not make him a skilled writer. To explain the Book of Mormon's existence, the critics must also make the claim that Joseph was a naturally gifted writer at age 23. Otherwise, how did he interweave scores of names, places, and events into a harmonious whole without inconsistencies? How did he pen detailed war strategies, compose eloquent sermons, and coin phrases that are highlighted, memorized, quoted, and placed on refrigerator doors by millions of people, such as, when you are in the service of your fellow beings, you are only in the service of your God, or men are that they might have joy? These are messages with a heartbeat, messages that live and breathe and inspire. To suggest that Joseph Smith, at age 23, possessed the skills necessary to write this monumental work in a single draft in approximately 65 working days is simply counter to the realities of life. President Russell M. Nelson, an experienced and skilled writer, shared that he had over 40 rewrites of a recent General Conference talk. Are we now to believe? that Joseph Smith, on his own, dictated the entire Book of Mormon in a single draft with mainly minor grammatical changes made thereafter. Joseph's wife, Emma, confirmed the impossibility of such an undertaking. Joseph Smith, as a young man, could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. And finally, even if one accepts all of the foregoing arguments, dubious as they may be, the critics still face another looming obstacle. Joseph claimed that the Book of Mormon was written on gold plates. This claim received unrelenting criticism in his day, for everyone knew that ancient histories were written on papyrus or parchment until years later, when metal plates with ancient writings were discovered. In addition, the critics claimed that the use of cement as described in the Book of Mormon was beyond the technical expertise of these early Americans until Cement structures were found in ancient America. How do the critics now account for these and similar unlikely discoveries? Joseph, you see, must have also been a very, very lucky guesser. Somehow, in spite of all the odds against him, against all existing scientific and academic knowledge, he guessed right when all the others were wrong. When all this said and done, one might wonder how someone could believe that all these alleged factors and forces as proposed by the critics fortuitously combined in such a way that enabled Joseph to write the Book of Mormon and thus foster a satanic hoax. But how does this make sense? In direct opposition to such an assertion, this book has inspired millions to reject Satan and to live more Christ-like lives. While well, someone might choose to believe the critics' line of reasoning, it is for me an intellectual and spiritual dead end. To believe such, I would have to accept one unproven assumption after another. In addition, I would have to disregard the testimony of every one of the eleven witnesses, even though each remained true to his testimony to the very end. I would have to reject the divine doctrine that fills page after page of this sacred book with its supernal truths. I would have to ignore the fact that multitudes, including myself, have come closer to God by reading this book than any other. And above all, I would have to deny the confirming whisperings of the Holy Spirit. This would be contrary to everything I know to be true. 
One of my good friends and bright friends left the church for a time. He recently wrote to me of his return, quote, Initially, I wanted the Book of Mormon to be proven to me historically, geographically, linguistically, and culturally. But when I changed my focus to what it teaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his saving mission, I began to gain a testimony of its truthfulness. One day, while reading the Book of Mormon in my room, I paused, knelt down, and gave a heartfelt prayer and felt resoundingly that Heavenly Father whispered to my spirit that the Church and the Book of Mormon were definitely true. My three-and-a-half-year period of reinvestigating the Church led me back wholeheartedly and convincingly to its truthfulness." If one will take the time to humbly read and ponder the Book of Mormon, as did my friend, and give ear to the sweet fruits of the Spirit, then he or she will eventually receive the desired witness. The Book of Mormon is one of God's priceless gifts to us. It is both sword and shield. It sends the Word of God into battle to fight for the hearts of the just and serves as an arch defender of the truth. As saints, we not only have the privilege to defend the Book of Mormon, but the opportunity to take the offense, to preach with power its divine doctrine and bear witness of its crowning witness of Jesus Christ. I bear my solemn testimony that the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. It is God's compelling witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ, the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith, and the absolute truth of this Church. May it become the keystone of our testimonies, so it may be said of us as it was the converted Lamanites, they never did fall away. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Amen.